0: The Irish are famous for many things. Their literary contributions, the Irish land war, and the violent quest for independence from British colonial rule, just to name a few. The remarkable little island birthed incredible figures from George Bernard Shaw and William Butler Yeats to Bobby Sands Sinead O'Connor, and Michael Collins. But, I'm about to tell you of another famous episode in Irish history that has to do with taking flaming shots. Stay tuned! Welcome, this is Radio Eyes History Show, and I'm your host, Joseph Bolt. So glad to be with you for this time and before we begin today's show, I just want to remind you that Radio Eye is listener driven and we will welcome any any of your comments or suggestions about our programming. So let us know if you have any thoughts or suggestions, comments, or you just want to talk and let us know at 859-422-6390. Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Sources for today's show will be cited along the way. So, let's get started. Of all the fires that Dublin, Ireland has seen, the great whiskey fire of Dublin stands as one of the worst. Along with other food-related disasters in history, like Boston's 1919 molasses flood and the 1878 Minneapolis flour mill explosion, this whiskey fire serves as a reminder of the dangers posed by the production of foods and drink that we take for granted. According to the Irish Times, the Great Whiskey Fire disaster occurred on June the 18th, 1875, at Malone's Bonded Storehouse in Dublin, where more than 5,000 barrels of whiskey and spirits were stored in various stages of aging. The storehouse was located in an area known as the Liberties, which is Dublin's central district and a part of the city that dates back to medieval times. In the 19th century, the Liberties was home to many large brewers and distilleries like Guinness and Jameson as well as pubs and other businesses, tenement houses for the working class and poor, and outdoor pens of animals like horses and pigs. While experts don't know exactly how this fire started, the inherent risk of distilling whiskey set the stage for disaster. Firefighter Insider says that bottled whiskey meant for retail is less flammable because it gets diluted down to a lower alcohol content. Whiskey in cask is undiluted, high-proof, and highly combustible. According to the National Fire Protection Association journal, volatile Alcohol vapors and high temperatures from distillation equipment additionally create conditions where explosions and fire can occur. The first reports of a fire at the warehouse came at about 8 p.m. that night. The fire spread rapidly. As flames reached the wooden cask holding the liquor, they burst open, sending a burning river of whiskey flowing through the streets like lava. The flaming whiskey quickly ignited buildings, forcing people to abandon their homes in a frenzied panic. In one case, mourners scrambled to move a corpse to safety, as flames engulfed one building where a wake took place that evening. The blazing booze caught fire to everything it touched, spreading flames so quickly it was impossible to do anything but run, or, in some cases, try to capture the precious liquid before it went to waste. In this poor part of 19th century Dublin, it wasn't uncommon to have farm animals living either inside or outside these tenements. Well, As a result, panic-ridden animals ran through the streets and only added to the mayhem of lava-like whiskey running alongside them. Locals tried to douse the flames with water, but the burning whiskey just floated to the surface. The Dublin Fire Brigade arrived and under the leadership of Captain James Robert Ingram, who had been a fire officer in the New York City Fire Department and was renowned for his unconventional strategies to control fires. On one occasion, he had ordered his men to resist putting out a fire on a blazing ship in Dublin Harbor and asked the Navy to sink it instead. Ingram knew that to pour water on this particular fire would be disastrous as the whiskey would float on top of it like petrol and spread the fire throughout the city. The residents in the Liberties area of Dublin were at a loss as to how to save their homes or even stop the fire from spreading. But the quick-thinking local fire marshal finally got the disaster under control. A captain knew that He had to stop the flow of burning whiskey before his team could try to save any buildings. So he sent for soldiers and ordered them to pull up paving stones and pour a mixture of sand and gravel on the whiskey. But despite the valiant efforts of everyone involved, the whiskey soaked through the materials. Ingram's next idea was unusual, to say the least. It was also smelly and incredibly effective. The era of horse-drawn transportation meant that the city had plenty of manure yards. Well, Ingram ordered the manure to be brought to the Liberties by the cartload and shoveled it back onto the streets from where it had once come from, all the while gathering the manure together to build dams and coat the streets. As the burning whiskey met the damp manure, it was soaked up and the fire slowly began to subside. Although contained, the flaming deluge seemed certain to hit both the Coombe Maternity Hospital and the Carmelite Convention, or rather, Convent, on Orman Street, until a kindly wind turned the tide away, which, of course, delighted the nuns who reportedly offered up thanks for a miracle. While considerable structural damage occurred, miraculously not one person died in the flames or from smoke inhalation. However, the whiskey fire did have victims. As the city burned, crowds gathered around the edges of the Flaming Booze River and attempted to capture free drinks in pots, pans, hats, and boots. Onlookers didn't realize the toxic strength of the undiluted alcohol, and the 13 people who died in the great whiskey fire all perished from alcohol poisoning. Hundreds more were treated for poisoning in local hospitals, with several going blind and suffering brain damage. The illustrated London Times noted that, quote, Crowds of people assembled and took off their hats and their boots, their own shoes to collect the whiskey which ran in streams along the streets. Four persons have died in the hospital from the effects of drinking the whiskey, which was burning hot as it flowed. Two corn porters named Healy and McNulty were found in a lake off Cork Street, lying insensible with their boots off which they had evidently used to collect the liquor. There are many other persons in the hospital who are suffering from the f- same cause. Two boys are reported to be dying, and it is feared that other deaths will follow. Quote. In yet another case... William Smith, one of the victims of the 1875 incident, was only 21 years old when he died. According to the Irish Times, the unmarried laborer and his friend John McGrain met on Bow Street around 10 p.m. when they heard about a terrifying fire enveloping the Liberties. Naturally, the curious young friends thought it worth a look. Well, when Smith and McGrain arrived, the stream of booze was two feet wide and six inches deep and was over 400 meters down one side of Mill Street. McGrain seemed to have gotten away with his life, although Smith, was one of the unlucky baker's dozen who died. Tales of the infamous Great Whiskey Fire are still alive today. In 2014, a new blend of craft whiskey was launched called Flaming Pig, named, of course, after the squeals of fleeing pigs said to have first alerted residents to the fire. Just as we heard, Captain James Robert Ingram was at the helm of the Dublin Fire Department at the time of the Whiskey Fire. Ingram was the first chief officer of the Dublin Fire Brigade and modeled the first Dublin Fire Brigade on that of the one in New York City that he had worked with earlier in his career. Ingram was born in Dublin in 1830 and immigrated to New York City in 1851, first earning a living as a bank engraver before joining the Niagara Hose Company in lower Manhattan, which was one of the many volunteer fire companies that made up the New York City Fire Department. His firefighting experience in the United States made him the perfect candidate in the eyes of the Dublin Corporation to head up their newly planned department at home. With Ingram's appointment, the Dublin Fire Department, as it was initially known, was born. Ingram recruited 40 men, many of whom, many of them, rather, previously sailors, and perhaps in tribute to his former colleagues in the New York Fire Department, Dublin's earliest firefighters wore a uniform of red flannel shirts. The officers of this new service wore a uniform which was a copy of the frock Coat and kepi of a United States Army officer. This heroic public servant died in May of 1882, twenty years after his return to his home city to found what we now know as Dublin Fire Brigade. He died at the young age of 52. For a man who had fought the flames of New York and then Dublin, it was tragic that tuberculosis would claim his life. This shocking fact has now become clear through a recently discovered report from Captain Thomas Purcell, later head of the Dublin Fire Brigade, who in 1892 would compile a list detailing the cause of death for members of the brigade in the decade prior. The nature of Ingram's job brought him into the tenements of Dublin, where tuberculosis was rife among the working class and impoverished of the city. Despite this remarkable character, you may be surprised to hear that as of about ten years ago, the first chief officer of the Dublin Fire Brigade was buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin. Sources for this story came from the website RareIrishStuff.com, an article entitled The Great Whiskey Fire of Dublin, 1875, by Rare Admin, written in November 2020, and the website Mashed.com, The Shocking Story Behind the Great Whiskey Fire of Dublin. Written by Nancy Mock in August of 2021. And allthat'sinteresting.com. An article entitled, When Burning Whiskey Flooded Dublin Streets, Thirteen Died Drinking Flaming Whiskey Out of Their Boots. Written by Marco Margaritoff in May of 2020. And ComeHereToMe.com, The Remarkable and Forgotten Captain James Robert Ingram, by Donnell, written in May 2012. This next article I'd like to share with you comes from the website History.com, and it's entitled Amid the 1918 Pandemic, Bootleg Whiskey Became a Respectable Medicine. and This was written by Greg Daughtery in April of 2020. When influenza began to sweep through the U.S. in 1918, a frightened nation looked to an unproven but familiar remedy, whiskey. There was just one problem. More than half the states had passed prohibition laws by then, making liquor difficult, sometimes impossible, to legally obtain. As citizens in the so-called dry states pleaded for whiskey to prevent or treat the deadly virus, some resourceful officials hit on a solution. Liberate the vast stores of bootleg liquor that had been confiscated since the statewide laws went into effect. While some of that contraband had simply been poured down the sewers, much of it remained locked away as evidence, or perhaps with an eye toward eventual repeal. Newspapers across the U.S. reported that military doctors were administering confiscated whiskey in Army camps, which had been hard hit by the flu. In Richmond, Virginia, two railroad cars of it reportedly rolled into beleaguered Camp Lee. At Camp Dodge, Iowa, where more than 500 soldiers had already died, hundreds of courts had been dispatched to fight the influenza. The Army was largely mum about what it was doing, while pro-Prohibition forces maintained that those stories were exaggerated, if not downright false. Some called them German propaganda, branding the reports a diabolical Hun plot meant to put American soldiers at risk from deadly alcohol. But before long, officials were breaking out their bootleg whiskey for civilian hospitals, too. Hospitals in Omaha, Nebraska received 500 gallons, courtesy of the local sheriff. The commissioner of the Internal, Internal Revenue Service in Washington, meanwhile, ordered his revenue agents in North Carolina to distribute their confiscated whiskey to hospitals around the state. The medical community was divided on whether whiskey was any real use in fighting the influenza or anything else. The highly regarded United States Pharmacopoeia, which published Standards for Prescription, and over-the-counter medicines had dropped whiskey, brandy, and wine from its listings in 1916. The following year, the House of Delegates of the American Medical Association had thrown its weight behind prohibition, resolving over the objections of some delegates that the use of alcohol as a therapeutic agent should also be discouraged. Still, many doctors continued to recommend and prescribe whiskey, for the influenza pandemic and a wide range of other ailments. When the AMA got around to survey in physicians on the matter in 1922, 51% said that they considered whiskey a necessary therapeutic agent. Some physicians believed alcohol helped stimulate the heart and respiratory system of patients weakened by illness, while others thought it's Sedative effects made suffering patients more comfortable. Even in states where alcoholic beverages were prohibited, doctors could often write prescriptions for medicinal whiskey and pharmacists could dispense it with certain restrictions. In Colorado, for example, doctors had to obtain numbered prescription forms from the state, and prescriptions were limited to four ounces. In Michigan, doctors could prescribe up to 8 ounces, but had to indicate how many prescriptions that patient had already received in the preceding year. The druggist then had to forward the form to the county prosecutor. In Indiana, doctors could only prescribe pure grain alcohol. Cities with whiskey on hand sometimes gave it out directly to anyone with a doctor's prescription. In Burlington, Vermont, for example, the local police department filled prescriptions free of charge thanks to the city's epidemic emergency fund. In Nashville, local authorities dispensed 10,000 half-pints of whiskey to residents with prescriptions. Pittsburgh doctors seemed only too eager to reach for the prescription pad. In Pittsburgh in 1919, four doctors and a druggist were arrested in a scheme to sell whiskey to patients who hadn't even been examined. The doctors earned $1 for each prescription, while the druggist got $5 a bottle for the whiskey. The scheme was so successful, newspaper reports said that local bootleggers had been forced to cut their prices in order to compete. In the wet states, of course, people were still free to buy whiskey and other spirits as they saw fit. The president of a Baltimore roofing company, concerned about the toll the influenza pandemic could take on his workforce, purchased a large bottle of rye whiskey and told his workers to help themselves whenever. In their individual estimation, it might be indicated He reported that not one of his more than 200 men had fallen ill. Whether they fell off the roofs, well, he didn't say. The makers of over-the-counter patent medicines, which had yet to be fully regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, also saw a money-making opportunity. In addition to newcomers, like Influenzine and Spanfluenza tablets, Many widely advertised concoctions that had been around for years simply added Spanish influenza to their list of ills they purported to prevent, treat, or even cure. What many had in common, aside from being of little to no medical value, was a substantial alcohol content. For example, tanlac, an elixir that billed itself as the master medicine and claimed to cure just about everything. Contained 17 percent alcohol, and Peruna, one of the most successful patent medicines of the day, contained a reported 28 percent. Meanwhile, pro-prohibition forces were reportedly becoming concerned. Would all the news about whiskey's supposed medicinal benefit derail to push the rat- to ratify the Eighteenth Amendment? and make Prohibition the law of the land, they needn't have worried. The amendment had all the state's votes it needed by January 16, 1919, and went into effect a year later. Not everyone was pleased by that outcome, to say the least. One soldier on a troop ship, returning from the war in 1919, spoke for a lot of his comrades when he interrupted a former government official who was giving the men a patriotic speech. Yes, we fought for democracy, the soldier reportedly shouted, but all we got was Spanish influenza and prohibition. And finally, one last little fact about whiskey. Did you know that approximately 2% of whiskey gradually evaporates through the barrels each year and this is famously known as the angels share well I guess it's time to close now I sure hope you enjoyed today's show and I thank you for listening and giving me your time today I'm your host Joseph Bolt, and I'll be back next time with another chapter of history. Until then, happy trails.